100% of the greenhouse gas emissions growth is, protect, is projected to happen in emerging markets. So if we're going to solve climate, we cannot ignore emerging markets. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sober Mesa Podcast. With us today, we have Emily McAteer, co-founder and CEO of Odyssey Energy Solutions. Emily is the first of hopefully many female founders we have on the show, and we'll cover her unique perspective on women-led startups, fundraising tips, and more. I also wanted to bring Emily on the pod to do a bit of a mini masterclass on energy, and hopefully you'll come out with a better understanding on everything clean tech, electrification, renewable energy, and a lot of these buzzwords that we hear every day. And we'll wrap up with the role of Odyssey in emerging markets, particularly in Africa, which is, as we'll see, a key factor in reducing the fossil fuel emissions if we want to get serious about climate change. So get ready. There's a lot of information to cover in the next half hour or so. Hope you enjoy. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. I uh, I didn't realize I'm the first female founder you've had on the show. You are. You are. So we'll, we'll delve a little bit uh, deeper into that. We'll have others as well, but uh, um, I think we'll have a good discussion around that topic as well. But let's let's start from the beginning, Emily. Um, you were born and bred in the energy space. Can you share with us how you got started? I'm sure you had a lot of energy discussions at your family dinner table as well. Yeah, I, it's always a little bit embarrassing. I, in some ways, the what's the phrase? The bird hasn't flown far from the nest. Um, yeah. But both of my parents worked in in energy and climate. Um, so grew up. My my father worked for uh, utility doing energy efficiency, and my mother worked for the um, Environmental Protection Agency, which is the U.S. Um, you know government agency. So um, I grew up talking about electricity grids, um, talking about climate, sort of from from day one. Um, and it was kind of always since then in my plan that I was that I would work in in climate and, and energy. So um, yeah, it was way back. And let's we're gonna delve deeper into uh, a lot of the technicalities and whatnot, but. Just to, to get it out of the way, what's Odyssey in a nutshell? Uh, let's just, what's the gist of it? And maybe if you want to use some examples or whatever you think it's easiest to explain what it is, and then we'll we'll pivot a little bit and come back to it towards the end. Yeah, yeah. So High Level Odyssey is a software platform to scale deployment of distributed renewables, primarily in emerging markets. Um, so we have a platform that covers planning projects, financing them, procuring equipment, and then operating assets. And um, maybe I'll leave it there because we're going to have plenty of time to break that Perfect. down and talk about what that means. Yeah. So so as as I said in the beginning, you're the first uh, female founder guest in the show. Um, and so I think you can, and I've heard you speak about the topic before, and I think you bring a very unique uh, maybe even controversial perspective on some on some regards, and it's good to have this discussion in in a more long form, uh, as it is in a podcast as opposed to a, you know blog post, which might get things out of context. Um, so, would love to hear your story on how you went about fundraising. And as we know, this kind of the setup is a tiny fraction of VC money goes to women led startups or, or only women led startups. Yet here you are with you know tremendous success from that perspective. The last round. Uh, uh, being led by tier one VC like Union Square Ventures, that's the round in which we participated at FJ. Um, and so you were very successful from that regard. Anything that you think you did differently uh, or you think that set you up for success uh, in a long, if you can share some tips or tactics, that'd be very helpful. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious what I've said in the past that might be controversial. I don't know if I have super controversial opinions on this, but 
Um, it, it might be helpful actually to back up and, you know, I, um, I wouldn't say I'm sort of like a natural entrepreneur. I was not one of those people that like, I went to business school, I went to Stanford business school there, you know, you get there and there's just people that know that they're in business school to start a company, um, and to do entrepreneurship. And I was definitely not one of those people. Um, so I embarrassingly did not take a single entrepreneurship class at Stanford. Um, and I remember when I was building a, a couple of years ago, I was building like a financial model for Odyssey and just kicking myself that I didn't take startup finance at Stanford because I would have been so much easier if I knew what I was doing. Um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a very sort of um, execution focused person. Um, and my superpowers are all around, like, how do you take a big problem, break it down into bits and pieces, get good processes in place and go execute. And so I always thought that that personality type di didn't jive with being an entrepreneur. I thought if you like entrepreneurs had to be blue sky thinkers and, you know, big vision people. And um, I was always kind of suited to either be in a more structured environment or, um, or like, you know, the, the operating partner to someone who is like that. So, um, so not only like in my sort of, I guess, if you, if you think about sort of um, patterns that, you know, I was up against being a, a, a woman trying to raise money, which is, you know, the stats are not great on that front, but then also just being someone that didn't think of themselves as a natural entrepreneur. Um, so it definitely took a lot of kind of practice and also re, um, I guess sort of reframing for myself about like what makes a good entrepreneur, because what I've learned over the years is um, entrepreneurs come in all different flavors and the superpowers that I have are really important for running a company and is have what sort of made Odyssey is today. Um, so that's it's kind of a long preamble, but I think it, it ties to my experience fundraising because, um, you know, the, the known sort of research um, on women in the workplace generally is that women, you know, don't apply for a job, for example, unless they check all of the check boxes that are listed in the job description. And, um, and fundraising is really similar, right? Like, you, my instinct is like, okay, we've done X, Y, Z, and we need to, um, you know, like we won't fundraise until we've, you know, 100% proven that we have product market fit and we're off. And and actually, fundraising, especially the early stage, is much more about like, hey, we have early indicators and really think we're on the right path. But like, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be at seed or we wouldn't be at Series A if we 100% knew that this is going to work out, right? Um, and so I had to sort of wrestle with um, with that and and learn how to um, kind of equally weight sort of granular details about where we are were with the with the sort of big opportunity we are chasing in vision um, because the opportunity is just so massive and that's part that's a, a big part of like what the bet that investors are making. How do you how do you do that uh, concretely? Let's say you because what I'm hearing right now is there's an element of you being very structured that seems to have helped throughout the fundraising process. And maybe we'll get deeper into that in a bit, but also there were some doubts and maybe self-imposed doubts that some, um, some founders might have on themselves that you have to overcome in order to, you know, you, you have the biases against you and the stats against you. And if you add to that sort of self-insecurities, that's, you know, uh, not a perfect combo. So how do you actually overcome those, uh, sort of self biases and and actually go ahead and and put yourself out there. I, I think it was um, refining the pitch to sort of lead with the opportunity um, and a little bit of education about what we are trying to do because most investors don't come in knowing a ton about 
the energy opportunity in emerging markets. And so I was sort of taking that for granted and I'd come in and just get really granular and like where we are today and where we're going. And um, it really helped when I sort of took a step back and reminded every investor I was talking to about like, hey, here's the big picture here. Like we're talking about energy infrastructure, right? That's not going away. And we're talking about it in a place where trillions of dollars of energy infrastructure is gonna be built in a very specific way that we are, we are basically catalyzing. Um, so really, yeah, it came down to remembering to provide that context in the beginning. And I think that really set me up to then do what I do best, which is talk about Odyssey and where we are and what our plan is and what we're executing on. Um, so, so yeah, I think that was a, that was a big piece of it. Um, and practice. Yeah. I mean, I had great seed investors that um, helped me get comfortable sort of with the, the whole process and made it a lot what easier. What about before that? What about day. before you, you had investors? Um, I have a lot of female founders and friends and, and people that ask me, Hey, if you ever have a female guest on the show, ask them about, you know, resources or how they've done it, how they go about it. Who did you practice with for, for to get those seed investors in the first place? Free seed. Yeah. Um, Business school friends, yeah, <laughs> um, wherever yeah, you can friends, get a hold yeah, of, yeah, wherever I could kind of like get to listen to me. Um, and and uh, one of my seed investors uses a great analogy that fundraising is kind of like wandering in the desert, and you don't even know if you're going to find water, but then as soon as you do, you find a water park. Um, yeah. That was definitely our our seed experience. Like just so many conversations, so uncertain what was landing, what wasn't. Um, but then you know when we found the fit uh, with our lead, we just it was like. I mean, we just knew that they were they were right for us and we were right for them and um, things became a lot easier from there. So Emily, and there's there's a saying that goes something like, tell me, tell me a story, not statistics. Um, but in this case, the opposite is also true, right? Your story is amazing. And and again, uh, from a fundraising perspective, you raised tens of millions of dollars. But but the statistics going back, there's still only two percent of female led um female led, I mean a hundred percent, because because if there's a woman and a man, there's there's the the percentage is higher but like where do you see that disconnect or what what's what what's your main reason in your view that these things still happen like where's the disconnect and what can we do about it well i think i do think it's a bit of a lagging indicator like i would guess that that number is changing um yeah. and because for the reasons i was just talking about where um you know the the stats or the, the research shows that women tend to be like a little bit more um practically grounded, like, you know, if you're applying for a job, which is the same thing as applying for funding for your company, it's like, do I have this credential? Do I have this criteria? And there, you know, when the VC market was super frothy and everything was based on kind of vision and promise, um, you could probably do better if you, if you were just sort of painting sort of the big picture and not grounding um, your, your pitch in numbers and plans and all of that. And, and that's definitely, I mean, there's just a lot more focus these days on what's actually been achieved and what do those early data points say about the potential for the business. Um, so I would I would guess that um, the changing kind of VC landscape is is moving in correlation with um, probably more female founders getting funded. Um, that and I would say um, I, I don't know if you've ever have you ever seen a breakdown of like what climate founders and and how what percentage female. I think I would I would guess too. I mean, climate's just one of those things that it's sort of this, this all hands on deck um, approach. And I, I've seen stats that at least the the percentage of female representation um, in the renewable energy sector is higher than in overall energy sector. 
And I would guess it's probably similar for founders in the climate climate tech sector. Um, so as we just see, a, yeah. There's a couple of things to mention here, and it, it and this is the it's not controversial, but this is the interesting piece to mention. I think um, we can stay there and 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 talk about the two percent um, all day long. But I think we we should also cherish the wins, quote unquote, cherish the wins with cases like yourself, because then if I'm a, a female founder, I'm thinking of potentially doing it, but I see all of these bleak statistics and, and I'm going to probably be discouraged in, in some capacity. But if I see the success cases out there and if I feel that there's a change underway, then I'm, I'm most likely to try it. And so I think that's that's a positive thing. And yeah. There are other positive statistics. I think I, I was mentioning before the combination of female and male founders went up from 6% in 2008 to all-time high right now, which is 18%. Mm. Again, a long way to go. But I also totally agree with you that this might be, again, it's so tough to measure, but this might be a, a, a lagging indicator, maybe a yeah. coincident indicator at best. Just think about the total VC money. Most of that is late stage. And the late stage companies were funded five, 10 years ago when the when the climate for women-led startups was completely different. So I think we might see a change, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed in the future. And that combined with an influx of VC women, with, um, most of my VC friends are women. And I think that that helps change the underlying biases. And so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, about, about the change on the way. Yeah, I always feel obligated too to tell my Series A fundraising story. It's, it's not fun to relive, but I... Um... I la I launched our Series A in my first trimester of my third pregnancy. Um, I have a baby due just in a few weeks now, and I was really really sick <laughs> doing it. Like basically the exact timeline in which you know you can be really sick from pregnancy correlated with um, with the the six weeks or so that you know I was pitching all the time and needing to be totally on my game and. Um, I have some pretty not fun stories of, you know, being needing to like throw up in between pitches and like, yeah, like lots of not fun stuff, but like, you know, I survived it and, um, and like to tell the story because it's a reminder of like, yeah, this was a really real thing that I had to deal with that a male counterpart wouldn't have to, you know, like there was just no way around it. And there were days that I woke up and just got, felt the injustice of it. But at the same time, it was like, I raised the Series A while, you know, still in the family building phase. I've had three kids all in the course of building Odyssey, um, or I guess I have my third coming, but I will have had three kids all in the course of building Odyssey. Um, and it's it's possible, and it's, and it's possible because of um, a lot of it because of sort of the hybrid remote work culture now. Um, you know, I uh, I took, you know, pretty short maternity leaves, both kids, like, few weeks I was off and that was about it, which is um, not, you know, not ideal and not common, but it always felt okay because I could kind of like be back, but also, you know, be near, near my, my kids when they were born. Um, and um, because I was working mostly remote. And so um, I think that there's things that just weren't possible before for female founders or for female executives that are now possible because of um, embracing the, the remote culture. Emily, let's uh, shift gears and, and talk about this, this mini masterclass. And we can take this wherever we want. But the, but the setup is, again, we have a lot of people in common, a lot of investors, a lot of friends, a lot of people in tech that might know about energy, might get excited uh, on energy topics, but maybe they don't fully grasp some of the basics or they don't really 
can connect all of the dots around different mega trends around the big energy space. So maybe let's take a step back and try to uncover some of the basic concepts on energy. And then we can talk about some of the mega trends and how do they relate to each other. Um, and let's also separate developed markets with, with developing markets. I think that'd be, that'd be helpful. But starting from, I'm based in and sitting here in New York, you're in Colorado. Where is the energy from my AC or my mic here coming from? Like, what's the setup in a developed country? Yeah, so um, I think it's helpful to kind of understand the work that we do in energy development, um, starting with how energy infrastructure gets developed and it got developed and now gets developed. So, um, you know, if you're sitting here in the U.S., you've got um, primarily really big power plants that generate energy. And some of those are renewable, right? Wind and solar, but a lot of them are fossil fuel based. Um, they connect into a utility grid. And then that utility grid takes power, takes, you know, a ton of power from this one source and spreads it all over the country. And then all the way down to, you know, the, the distribution cable. So we, there's transmission, which sort of spreads it really far, right? Those are the big cables that energy is running through. And then it, it's called, it steps down into what we call distribution, which brings it a little bit closer to your home. And then there's the cable that's bringing it to, to you and your mics working. And, um, and um, so we call that essential utility grid. Um, what's interesting is that um, as we, so as we've tried to decarbonize our grid, right, as we've tried to move away from fossil fuels, we've done it in two ways. One, we've built large renewable energy power plants that feed into the grid. Um, but the challenge is you have to have, you know, because the sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't always blowing. And you but that's, always that's have important, Emily, because a lot of people take for granted that m the energy powering this mic most likely is coming from natural gas or oil, non-renewable, right? And I might have my compost and feel good about energy or whatever, but most likely most of the things that are powering my, my apartment right now are coming from fossil fuels. And that seems obvious, but it's not really obvious. And, and, and just a little digression here. There's a, there's a book that I really recommend called um, How the World Really Works. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I, I think it's, it has this sort of very graphic uh, comparisons. They talk about like a, a supermarket bought tomato and that it packs like five tablespoons of diesel on its production. <laughs> and so just very graphic, just slicing your tomato, you can go to the fridge and think about one, two, three, five tablespoons of diesel and things that you never think about. And it's super, super graphic. And so we're really dependent on fossil fuels and that's how hard this problem is. Um, yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons it's so hard is because like um, we have really great technologies for solar and wind, but they're, they're what we call intermittent, right? So if you have a central utility grid, you always need to be matching um, power supply and demand, right? That's the challenge because you, because you, the only way you can really store energy is through energy storage solutions like big batteries. And when we're talking about a huge utility grid across the whole U.S., like that is a lot of batteries. That's a lot of storage, and that's a, that's been a big sort of technology challenge. So if you can't, if it's hard to store energy, then having energy kind of fluctuate on one side, right? Having winds coming online and solar shining and then not shining becomes really hard. Um, to to then also have like demand the demand um, to to match that so um, so so we are we are integrating tons of renewables into the grid and that's one of the reasons and one of the ways that we are trying to decarbonize the central utility grid um, but then the other thing we're doing is integrating what we call distributed renewables and that's that's the world in I work distributed renewables basically means 
a, um, a very small power plant right in the place of whoever's using that power. So best example, like the solar on a house, right? Distributed renewable, like the house is using using that that solar. Um, and then we're trying to, you know, in the U.S. or in other in other developed markets, what we're doing is we're trying to integrate that into our central utility grid so that we can, you know, uh, set, send it back into the grid and have it power somebody else if I'm not using the full the full solar on my roof. Um, is that the best way? Is that is there a bit of path dependency on hey the U.S. and other developed markets? started with a centralized grid and now as we decarbonize and try to decentralize energy then we need to plug into the centralized solution or if you could build it from scratch would you start it that way and maybe we could yeah, pivot well, to, to some yeah, of the work you're doing in yeah that that's a great pivot to how it's working in emerging markets because it was what's exciting and unique about um the markets where we work is that the central utility grid um is either undeveloped like doesn't even exist in certain places or is underdeveloped in that um, there's more supply than the grid basically has been built out to provide. Um, which means, uh, the, the downside of that, it means that we have for what we call energy access or energy reliability, right? So if you're living in Nigeria, um, if you're living in rural Nigeria, for example, you might not have the grid at all, No, you have no power. Um, or if you're living in Lagos, the power is going out all the time because the grid is just not um, built to support the level of demand that uh, economic and pop population growth have um, created. So, um, so that's the downside. But the, the positive is that um, we have this opportunity to do things right from scratch because we need to develop energy infrastructure from scratch. And now the cost of um, renewables, the cost of solar, the cost of batteries has come down so much that often the most cost-effective way to build a new energy source from scratch is to start with distributed renewable. Yeah, that's impressive. So, so even for yeah. factories, like you're, you're starting a factory or a business and you think solar first than any other thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so you'll go and you'll put, um, let, let's take, yeah, factory is a great example. You're a factory outside of Abuja, Nigeria, and um, you're not getting, maybe you are connected to the grid, but you're not getting reliable grid power and you need to have your machines running 24 seven. You're going to go, you've, you've basically two options, a diesel generator, um, or a solar on your roof, solar and storage that can kick in whenever you need power. Um, and, and the cost of solar has come down so much that now it's, it's cheaper often than diesel, especially with rising diesel prices. And so solar is your best solution to have reliable power. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the world in which we work is, okay, there's this massive opportunity to build distributed renewable energy infrastructure as the, the infrastructure that's getting built. It's not kind of like a, oh, it might be nice to have solar on my roof, or I can save a little bit of margin if I put solar, you know, if I arbitrage the grid and use solar when grid pricing is higher or, or not, it really is sort of the, the solution to provide power. Um, and then everything we're doing at Odyssey is basically how do we accelerate that potential. That's awesome. Can, can you maybe explain um, a little bit more what what do we mean when we talk about mini grids or micro grids? Because this is not just me and my factory having a solar panel and that's it. I'm part of a mini ecosystem, right? And that's that's sort of the beauty of it. But how how do they work? If I want to do that, how do I go about it? I'm, I'm in Nigeria. I want to set up my business. And I think, okay, solar is more economical for me or makes more sense. What's What's next and how does it work? Well, actually, so the way the way we kind of think about the distributed renewables market, there's three segments to it. Um, on the smallest scale is uh, residential solar, so very similar to the U.S. 
like you're putting roof, you're putting solar on your rooftop to power your home. Um, the second category is what we call commercial industrial or CNI solar. That's your factory that is probably putting solar either on its roof or nearby, um, and um, either is totally off grid and relying just on that solar to power the factory, or is using a mix of that distributed renewable energy resource and the grid to make sure it's got reliable power. Um, the third category is what we call mini grids, um, and the, that that term typically applies to um, a community that doesn't have access to the grid at all um, or is very underserved by the central utility grid. Um, and so a mini grid is actually a, a, a mini power plant, um, uh, probably solar batteries and, and maybe a diesel genset backup and a, and a distribution network that's, that's um, connecting multiple what we call off takers or multiple power users. So it's probably connecting to all of the households in a community plus all of the businesses and maybe a health clinic or um, a factory and or whatever. Who sets sort of... that up? Like if I'm a factory owner, I need to know about the existence of these mini grid or how, or how do I go about it? Or, yeah. if, or if I want to have solar, I, I, I convince the others to turn into solar as well and try to come up with my own mini grid. Well, there, there can be a little bit of like a draw. There, there's a lot of draw from, from the power users, the off takers, right? A community yeah. saying, hey, like, we don't have access to power. Someone needs to come um, build build this. Um, but a lot of it also comes, with the, especially in the work that we do, it comes from um, what we call project developers. So the companies that are building these assets and operating them and sort of bringing them to a place that they, they've identified is underserved by the grid, but has high potential to use power. Um, and what's interesting about that, again, it's a very different paradigm for energy infrastructure development than we have seen here in the US. Typically in the US, like we have these quasi-governmental organizations, um, utilities that run a big, you know, centralized utility grid. Um, in these markets, these are small local players that are acting like mini utilities, right? They might just own one or two or 20 mini grids, and they are responsible for identifying the site, for building the, the power and system. These and these are private endeavors or public mm -hmm. or a mix? Pri yeah, private companies. And, and that's what's been really interesting. There's been a regulatory shift realizing, okay, the central utility, sort of quasi-government utilities are not keeping up with energy demand aren't building out the grid. And so we need to make it possible for private companies to sort of fill that gap. The best example of this is um, in South Africa, the, um, the, the main sort of central utility, ESCOM, has had all of these challenges basically meeting energy demand. I mean, there's rolling blackouts every day. It's the first thing anyone will talk to you about when, you know, when you're talking to someone in Cape Town or Joburg, because it's, it's just such a pain point um, that, yeah, the grid is the grid is hasn't been able to keep up with energy demand. And so the, what the government has done is said, OK, we acknowledge that ESCOM isn't meeting demand. We're going to, um, via regulations, make it much more much easier for private companies to come in and fill the energy gap. And so they deregulated the licensing process um, for anything under 100 megawatts, which is actually really big. They, they've made it a lot easier for private companies to go just build those projects and provide power. Um, and that's a trend that we're seeing across Africa um, because this because of this need for a paradigm shift of small private companies to be able to 
act as utilities, essentially. And how do you solve with those mini grids the issue that we were talking about before when the U.S. developed their own centralized grid? How do you solve the the solar and wind being intermittent? How do you solve it here? Well, you have you have um, storage. You you, you have a storage key. solution, and then a diesel generator backup when it get you know if it's been cloudy for multiple days on end. Understood. Yeah. That is that is the key then, and and so. You're hinting towards something in in Africa, which is your main market and in other emerging markets. And I think it's a good segue to talk about some of these mega trends within energy that might or might not have the same agenda, um, depending on the you talk about energy access or clean energy. They might seem part of the same thing, but they might not be right. If you think about, you know, take whatever protocol or whatever agreement before Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, measure the energy consumption growth today, and it has gone, gotten up, which is great news potentially for energy access, because most likely a lot of you know n- nations or regions that didn't have access to energy before, now they have, which is great for their economy. They can develop the same way developed nations did before. But on the flip side, if you look at the, uh, the growth there, most likely 50% or so, I forget the exact number, is coming from fossil fuels. So that might seem to clash with clean energy. So how, how do you marry all of these mega trends within energy and, how, and what's your view on, on, on each of them or the most important ones? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it all comes down to economics, right? So I think the fundamental sort of trend that's helping renewables um, gain greater market share of um, overall energy infrastructure in emerging markets is the fact that it's often cheaper. It's just a, it's cheaper to deploy that, that resource versus build a big power plant or build out a transmission grid. Um, but not always, right? And so it is, there is this tension of, um, hey, for economic development in these countries, we have to have reliable power, right? You can't, you can't operate a growing economy without having reliable power. Um, and so, you know, if, if fossil fuels are a faster way to get there in certain contexts, like you can imagine that decision making sense. Um, and that's where, I mean, it really comes down to, um, global cooperation to, to price price carbon right there's a there's an externality that's not being priced in and if you price that in then distributed renewables are always going to make more sense than building out a big fossil fuel power plant yeah no that that makes sense but again some people talk about energy and they choose to forget about what it means to support some of these regions in their economic development most likely it'll mean you know getting comfortable with more fossil fuels for uh, the next couple of years for sure and that the decarbonization goals that we have are a bit unrealistic um, and going back to our original comments on how dependent we are um, we as developed nations and let alone emerging markets on fossil fuels and so uh, you know I think that's a, that's an interesting at least contradiction in some of the mega trends that we're seeing within energy yeah yeah no it definitely is I mean I think um, if we can really get sort of robust carbon markets going it's going to make a huge difference. Again, I'm seeing this in Africa where there's a number of projects that um, the, the unit economics don't quite pencil out. But if you had another revenue stream coming from developed countries, you know, let's say corporations that are looking to decarbonize their supply chain, if they're buying um, renewable energy credits, if they're buying carbon credits from those assets, then the unit economics totally makes sense and the project will, will would move forward. Um, and so the, I think that's that's part of the it's a major piece of the puzzle is that if we can really sort of um, make carbon markets more um, you know just 
continue to expand them, make the pricing make sense, we'll see um, we'll see a lot more renewable energy development uh, in emerging markets. Emily, can you remind us of the importance of emerging markets within the broader energy landscape? And you were hinting towards it at the beginning of the conversation. We talked about you presenting to investors and having to remind them how big this opportunity is um, in emerging markets, in Africa, in energy. Like, just give us some some sense of how big it really is. Mm, yeah, well, um, it's big in two ways. So one is in terms of sort of climate, um, almost 100% of the greenhouse gas emissions growth is, protect, is projected to happen in emerging markets. So if we're going to solve climate, we cannot ignore emerging markets. And that was a conversation I had a lot of, uh, with climate investors specifically, um, because, you know, it's it, it, emerging markets is new for a lot of investors, uh, as is climate investing. And so, you know, um, so I sort of had to remind remind investors like, hey, if if we're really going to move the needle on climate, we need to be investing in these markets. Um, and we need and it, and what's interesting is that it's not it, there's no there's like very little technology risk, right? It's not it's not like we need to be investing in cutting edge technologies in these markets to decarbonize them or suck carbon out of the air. It's really about no, we just need to put these economies on a low carbon development track, right? With tried and true technologies, just with solar storage, things that we know work. It's more of a business model question. How do we make sure that we, the unit economics of these projects pencil out and that more and more of them can get built? Um, but then the other opportunity is just simply that, you know, trillions of dollars are going to be going into, um, into energy infrastructure in these markets because the, there's a lack of energy infrastructure. Um, and so if so much money is going to be poured into these, um, into energy infrastructure, let's make sure that that money is being directed to the right type of energy infrastructure. Totally. And so let's let's circle back to Odyssey now with, with hopefully we're, we became experts in energy in, in 20 minutes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, uh, what do you guys do more concretely now that we have more, more context uh, on, on, on the region and, and, and some of the basic tents? Yeah, so I mean, Odyssey sort of guiding mission is to accelerate the deployment of distributed renewable energy in emerging markets. So hopefully I've kind of laid out what the opportunity is and what the potential is. Um, but And our job is basically to help the market meet that potential. Um, one of the dynamics of these markets is that, um, and I kind of described this a little bit earlier, but a lot of the companies that are building energy infrastructure projects in these markets are small to medium-sized enterprises. There's a lot of work that happens on the ground that you sort of need um, need to be a, a local company to do. Um, and so as a result, A, there's a lot of fragmentation in the market, and B, a lot of these companies aren't, um, aren't benefiting from economies of scale. And so our thought behind Odyssey is can we create You're a- You're talking about the- what you call the project developers, no? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we call them we call them renewable energy companies, and they're they're project developers. Um, other another sort of category of company is what we call EPCs, engineering procurement and construction firms that are installing these yeah. projects. Um, and so Odyssey, all of our product is basically oriented towards helping them scale faster. Um, so we said, can we create a tech solution that takes some of the many challenges that they have off their plate? Um, to streamline their development process and then help them get more projects off the ground in a given year. So our tech has tools for planning projects. Um, so like, let's say you've got a shopping mall that you're trying to sell power to and you want to convince them that solar makes sense. You can use our technology. You can use our, our tech to um, 
you know, size the, the system, tell them how much it's going to cost them, put together a proposal, that kind of thing. Um, and then we have technology for streamlining the financing process because a lot of what's holding back the uh, scale and potential of the sector is um, how kind of slow the project finance is in the sector. And, and a lot of that's just because it's a, it's a nascent sector with, that requires sort of a different paradigm for financing. Um, when I was first kind of, uh, when I was, for, I, I started as a project developer myself, which is kind of the origins of Odyssey. And when I was doing that work, I was realizing, okay, so financiers, you know, banks are um, looking at these projects and applying a framework that they're used to applying uh, to utility scale projects, like $100 million big power plants. And that that framework just doesn't work when you're trying to finance an, a, um, a portfolio of many small assets, right? Like you, you cannot, you need standardization, you need a way to streamline the process, you need to understand every single asset within that portfolio, right? Because these are infrastructure projects you're developing, but you just can't spend millions of dollars looking at each individual asset or else the, the whole project doesn't make sense. So we've built, we've built solutions to kind of streamline the process of evaluating and diligencing um, assets so that developers can get access finance more quickly. Um, and then you move on to needing to procure your equipment. And the challenge that a lot of our customers have is that they're small buyers. And so um, they can't access equipment manufacturers directly. They are buying through local distributors um, and paying a um, much higher price. And so then the unit economics of these projects make a lot less sense. And so we built a, a digital market base to essentially aggregate lots of small buyers, become a big buyer um, and give direct um, access to equipment manufacturers for things like solar PV and, um, and battery. And then finally, the last challenge is operating your assets. So now you've got a portfolio of assets. They're all over the place. They're small. You can't be sending someone out every time you want to check out what's going on. And so we have a full what we call remote management and control technology, which allows operators to um, uh, always kind of know what's going on with any solar system, solar project in their portfolio and then also remotely control it. So um, if you want to be kind of optimizing the way that the system is running, you can turn things on and off from afar using our technology. You can set what we call logic loops, which are algorithms that optimize how the system, different components of the system interact with each other. And is that is that um, a SaaS as well? That's that's a freemium SaaS, no? Freemium SaaS. Um, and then we have a um, small hardware component um, sort of an, to, a, a, or a suite of them to enable the local communication with it's, the It's impressive the, the, the platform that you guys are building. It's, it's, and it has a lot of network effects on each of them and a larger network effect for, for the entire network just to... to completely oversimplify what you guys are doing and just summarize what you just said. Two SaaS components, one for the you know, world banks or the financiers, if you want, that helps them streamline um, through standardized metrics, hopefully, and for them to be able to understand, okay, where do I, where do I, before, if I'm analyzing a big, big project, I can, you know, spend a lot of, a lot of money on due diligence and deep due diligence here. You don't have the resources. It, it's, it's not justifiable. So Odyssey helps you with that or helps them with that. Then you have two marketplaces. You have the financing marketplace just to help streamline that financing, which is one of the largest bottlenecks. And then you have the procurement marketplace for the project developers to be able to access all of those uh, economies of scale of of of, of buying, you know, at a, a better a better prices, solar panels or equipment or whatever they need. And then you have the operating component you just said. Uh, that's 
am I am I missing something? I ob obviously oversee. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, the way we talk about it is um, fi uh, plan, finance, build, and operate your assets. So yeah. we have a sort of set of digital tools for each of those stages of project development. That's that's awesome, Emily. And I've heard, um, I think it was Chamath, and maybe and lots of people talk about like the 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 first trillionaire in 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 the world will 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 be made in climate change. If you had to to make a prediction, which sector and we've we've spoken about different sectors within energy and different mega trends which sector do you think that will be or which business model do you think will capitalize uh so much on this trend that will make the first trillionaire i don't know honestly yeah, i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think like I, this may be a bit of a controversial opinion or a hot take but i think i actually think we're focusing on the wrong thing if we're talking about how to become a trillionaire in climate oh, change for sure. um yeah it, I, i mean this is a global problem that's jeopardizing humanity's future generations and i think it's a problem precisely because it's uneconomic right like if if this were wildly profitable today we wouldn't be having this problem but the this the problem that we've had is that it's been cheaper to build carbon intensive um industries up until now and so um if we can sort of get the global collaboration and the right regulations and incentives in place and we can price carbon then we will have solutions to reduce it but it's it's a long road there um i don't think it's sort of about just finding like the right tech or the right silver bullet um so yeah i guess that's a bit of a bit of a dodge but um no i mean it's so hard if if, if only we knew obviously we don't have the crystal ball but um again it goes back to when people invest in climate it's so broad so broad and and Some of them, you you could be investing in conflicting things or conflicting views. So I think that's what I'm trying to do here is to push people to think about what we really mean when we talk about climate tech. <laughs> and there's yeah. so many. Well, yeah, and and I think the other trend that I would like to see, I think is happening, and I'd like to see more of is um is the venture capital world um getting more comfortable investing in things that are maybe outside of their comfort zone when they're looking at climate. Because what I what I saw a lot in my fundraising process was, um, uh investors that that had a you know in, knew how to invest in SaaS companies for example or knew or knew how to invest in a certain type or or you know you guys know how to invest in marketplaces and then are looking for climate solutions that fit that mold and sometimes it works out um but you know climate is not going to be the same as e-commerce SaaS right like it's 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 got to have new new solutions because it's a new type of problem and so hopefully we'll see more versatility in sort of the types of business models that investors are starting to fund, which will give us more, a more breadth of solutions for, for actually solving the core problem. That's great. Emily, can't thank you enough for, for this terrific conversation. Anything that you want to close with? Uh, any, any final messages before we wrap it up? No, I mean, I think I probably made this clear, but um, obviously I sort of view emerging markets as this um, huge opportunity. I think like Odyssey is um, playing its role in, driving more capital into emerging markets, but they're so crucially important that I always encourage investors that maybe haven't um, traditionally invested in emerging markets to uh, think about what it would take to kind of ramp and become comfortable in these, these new geographies that are just so critically important for climate change solutions. Amazing. Yeah.